Introducing Christianity to Mormons, a new book by Mormonism Research Ministries' Eric Johnson and published by Harvest House Publishers is a resource that will help you share your faith with Latter-day Saint friends and loved ones. Order your copy of Introducing Christianity to Mormons at mrm.org. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, we hope you enjoy this repeat broadcast. Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. With me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. As we've been doing for the past couple of weeks, we are looking at a devotional talk that was given to young adults on January 12, 2014 at Brigham Young University. This talk was given by Tad Callister of the Presidency of the Seventy, and it was titled, What is the Blueprint of Christ Church? If you've missed those past broadcasts, we encourage you to go to our website and look at our archives. Eric, I think this is a good topic to discuss because, if nothing else, Tad Callister is trying to burst that bubble that some think somehow Christianity and Mormonism are compatible. I don't think Tad Callister is making a case for that kind of a conclusion, do you? Well, he's basing a lot of his interpretations on his presuppositions. He comes up with interpretations of the Bible that are not found in the context of what the passages are saying, and so those are faulty interpretations. When he starts off this whole talk by citing Doctrine and Covenants section 1 verse 30, and he says, The Lord makes this bold and significant statement, quoting, This is the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth. And that's really the premise of this whole talk. When he says, what is the blueprint of Christ's church? He's making the assumption that only the Mormon church fits this alleged blueprint that he says can be found in the New Testament. And one thing we've noticed, he is citing the New Testament quite a bit, but as you've brought out, his interpretations of some of these verses are certainly highly questionable. I think if he was to take a normal hermeneutics class at any reputable Christian seminary, he would probably get an F when it comes to his interpretation of some of these verses. Today, we are going to be looking at how he justifies the idea of baptismal regeneration as we would understand it. And so let's begin when he talks about the third page of the blueprint reads. And I want to remind uh, our listeners that we are looking at also the 17 points of the true church, a document that was put together many years ago that listed reasons why the LDS church is the only true church. And so the seventh point of those 17 points the true church must baptize by immersion, Matthew three thirteen through 16, and Callister follows with that when he says, as you read, the third page of the blueprint reads, ordinances in Christ's church. The blueprint is very specific in this regard. For example, do we bless or baptize infants and little children? What does the blueprint teach? The Savior gave the clear example for us. Speaking of little children, the scriptures read, quote, And he, Jesus, took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them, end quote. And he, he gets that from Mark 10:16. Then Matthew confirmed as to little children, the Savior, quote, unquote, laid his hands on them. That's from Matthew 19:15. Yeah, let's stop right there because 
The passages that he cites, Mark 10:16 and Matthew 19:15, definitely Jesus did put his hands upon some children and bless them. But do we see Jesus doing that everywhere he goes? No. And the, and the reason I ask that question is, okay, there's an example where Jesus happened to take some children and he blessed them. How do you come to the conclusion that that has to be an ordinance in the church when Mark is telling the same story that Matthew is telling? In other words, we don't see Jesus making it a point to go after every little child to lay his hands on them, and we don't even see this being repeated in the book of Acts. It certainly would be an argument from silence to say that he did every time he ran across a child that he would put his hands on them and bless them, but we certainly don't see it. We also don't see it in the New Testament church, according to the book of Acts, because you would think somewhere along the line that that would have been mentioned or somewhere in the epistles of Paul that he would have talked about blessing the little children. We don't see it. So that's a problem. And I think we need to mention here that if the church wants to do that, I don't see anything inherently unbiblical about it. But how do you come to the conclusion that this is supposed to be a standard ordinance in the church? In Callister's eyes, an ordinance that tends to show that the Mormon church is true. I I just don't see how you can make that leap in logic. Callister continues on and says, The blueprint teaches that infants and little children are blessed, not baptized. In fact, there is not one account of an infant baptism occurring anywhere in the entire New Testament. Why? Because it was not an ordinance in Christ's church. Someone looking for Christ's church today would look for a church that blesses infants, not baptizes them. I would tend to agree in principle with what he's saying. He's right. There is no example of any infants being baptized in the New Testament. But there is a, an in-church debate. We have to acknowledge there are some Christians who do baptize infants and use certain verses like Acts 16, 31 and 32 and other places to support that idea. But Bill, I think this is a peripheral issue. We're willing to agree to disagree because this is not an issue that involves salvation. And, and that's an important point. Callister, coming from a Mormon background, naturally believes, and he's going to make that point, that baptism is essential for salvation. If you don't believe that baptism is essential for salvation, then that doesn't become a primary issue, whether someone wants to baptize or or sprinkle a child, as you say. If it's not mandatory that you have to be baptized in water, it becomes secondary. But then he goes into an issue that I think does become an essential issue for salvation when he asks the question, is baptism essential for salvation? What does the blueprint teach? After Christ set the example of being baptized, he declared in unequivocal terms, quote, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, end quote. And that's from John chapter 3, verse 5. Now, where I think Callister is missing it, and I think a lot of Christians might be missing it, is why did Jesus use that kind of language, being born of water and of the Spirit? Many scholars, and I think they're correct, say that there's some Old Testament language in there that Jesus was referring to, and that's why Jesus rebukes Nicodemus, who was supposed to be a teacher in Israel, and should have known this. He should have seen the connection. The two connections that we're going to give because of time is Isaiah 44.3. In Isaiah 44.3, we find a connection between water and the Spirit. What does it say? It says, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit on your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. Now there's another example in the Old Testament found in Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, 25-26, what does it say there? Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. The important part is the indwelling of the spirit that's talked about here, the symbolism of the water and such. But you would be hard-pressed to draw the conclusion that what those Old Testament passages are talking about is actually water baptism. If that's not the case, and Jesus is pointing back to those verses like that, then you can't assume that he's talking about water baptism in this context. The commentator Leon Morris says this, and I think he's right when he says, Nicodemus could not possibly have perceived an allusion to an yet non-existent sacrament. It is difficult to think that Jesus would have spoken in such a way that his meaning could not possibly be grasped. His purpose was not to mystify, but to enlighten. In any case, the whole thrust of the passage is to put the emphasis on the activity of the Spirit, not on any rite of the church. Callister goes on then to cite Acts 2.38, and this is a very popular verse that many who believe in baptismal regeneration will use. And that's where it says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. They will take that word for, which is the Greek word ace, and they will interpret it as meaning that in order to get the remission of sins. But that's not the only way that can be understood. It can also be understood in view of. And we do find that example in Matthew 12:41, where the same word used for for in Acts 2:38 is cited in Matthew 12:41, but what does it say there? It says, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at, that word ace, at the preaching of Jonas. And so it, it's the receiving of, as Brooks and Winbury say, it's the ground or reason for the action. It answers the question why. And we can't assume that in Matthew 12:41 where it says that they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They didn't repent in order to get the preaching of Jonah. They repented in view of the preaching of Jonah. So I think here again, Callister and the Mormon church, and I would also say anyone who claims that that, that Acts 2.38 is implying that you must be baptized in water in order to receive a remission of sins, would be an error on this. Yeah, uh, Christian commentator Richard N. Longnecker, this is what he writes. In trying to deal with the various elements in this passage, some interpreters have stressed the command to be baptized so as to link the forgiveness of sins exclusively with baptism. But it runs contrary to all biblical religion to assume that outward rites have any value apart from true repentance and an inward change. Bill, he's making a great point, because if you read through the Bible, it's always talking about faith. And in fact, if you go into the next chapter with Peter, and that follows his sermon in Acts chapter 2, in Acts 3.19, his command is, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Well, he doesn't even mention the word baptism. He's talking about repentance, and he's talking about forgiveness. Baptism is not mentioned at all. And we also have to remember that according to Paul in Titus 3.5, he says that we are not saved by righteous works. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And I ask many Latter-day Saints when they try to justify this idea that they need to be baptized in water or pay a tithe or belong to the Mormon church, I will ask them, well, do you think that that, though they're not bad in your eyes, are they considered righteous works? 
would you consider those works to be righteous? And they'll say, well, yes. I said, well, then what do you do with Paul's statement? Not by works of righteousness. Yes, because what is being emphasized there is what we can do and what we can accomplish. But according to Titus 3.5, as you've cited, it's only done through Christ's mercy, not of works of righteousness. Unfortunately, because of Tad Callister's presupposition regarding baptism in water, we're going to see his error trickle into another doctrine that he thinks is essential and a part of the blueprint of Christ's true church, and that is baptism for the dead. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism. Is there not much of a difference between Mormonism and Christianity? Well, actually, despite what many may think, there is. And when it comes to this sensitive and even highly charged issue that is eternal ramifications, the Christian may not know where to turn. Just trying to understand the Mormon's beliefs can be both confusing and frustrating. That's why Mormonism 101 was written, a book resource by Mormonism Research Ministries Bill McKeever and Eric Johnson that contrasts vital doctrines such as who is God, what is scripture, and how a person is able to go to heaven. When the two religions are placed side by side, the differences are many. Mormonism 101 is a tool that will help you better understand the doctrines of your Latter-day Saint friend, family member, or co-worker. And it even has witnessing tips available to help you in future conversations. Published by Baker Books, Mormonism 101 is available at mrm.org or ask for it at your favorite Christian bookstore. Always be prepared to give an answer.